So, um, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 2 this evening. Psalm chapter 2. And uh, we're going to shift. Uh, so, we've been talking about um, wisdom psalms. Uh, this evening, we're going to look at a different kind of psalm. It's called a royal psalm. I'll talk more about that in a minute. For now, I'm just going to begin by reading Psalm chapter 2. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against the anointed ones. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So, Psalm 2 is one of ten royal psalms. Uh, The other nine are um, 18, 20, 21, 45, 72, 101, 110, 132, and the first 11 verses of 144. Um, Royal psalms deal with two things. They deal with um, the king, uh, the the Israelite king, as God's anointed or chosen one, Um, and many of them are prayers for the wisdom of the king and his long life or success in battle. Um, but then they also simultaneously uh, emphasize God's promise to David that he would have an eternal kingdom. And so you, if you're reading along with this, you can see that there is um, some crossover between how David talks about himself, but then also transitions into talking about uh, or, or prophesying that God will install his king uh, on Zion, his holy hill. So he He is uh, mixing the throne, uh, the earthly throne of Israel, with the heavenly throne uh, uh, in the holy city of heaven, and talking talking about how the two mix. Now, um, interestingly, when I was studying this psalm, I came across um, a study from the Yale Divinity School, and uh, they read this a lot more... um, Skeptically, pragmatically, they talk about it as if it's just another world religion mixing their earthly authority with some kind of divine authority. But we know um, from the uh, interweaving of the messianic prophecies that uh, there's much more to this than that. This is not just an earthly uh, kingdom, Israel, manipulating some idea of God. These are ultimately promises that came true through the line of David in a very, um, very specific and almost impossible way. So, um, that's what royal psalms are all about. Um, now, how do we apply this today? So, we've been talking about the psalms. The psalms are like a box of chocolates. Uh, you never know what you're going to get, but they all are uh, a part of our story in life. And so, that's what we've been calling this series. So, let me just, uh, let me, let me just jump in here. Two, two major research groups this past summer uh, put out some extensive information about pastors and burnout. Okay, so um, the Barna Group 
uh, published that 42% of pastors, just this past summer, 42% of American pastors were actively looking to leave the ministry right now. Not retire, but to leave the ministry. Now, I want to be really clear. I'm in the 58%, okay? Not in the 42. Uh, I, I feel uh, fulfilled and energized for the ministry that God's given me. And uh, certainly, I identify with some of the factors that are making pastors feel uh, tired, but I am not, uh, not looking to get out. Um, now, there are three reasons that Barna identified as to why pastors primarily were looking to exit. Um, the first was, or the number three reason was stress, um, specifically the weight of church leadership during the pandemic, cutting back staff um, and having fewer volunteers, but maybe expectations actually being, or needs being higher because uh, the disconnectedness and the inability in a lot of states to even meet together in practical ways made pastors feel a heavy burden and a lot of stress um, to keep the church connected. And then, on top of that, the challenge of recovery. So we, we got out of the habits that we were in before, and now, uh, now things are starting to open back up, but how do we uh, return, to the way, return to the ways that were uh, healthy for us and good for our church, and, and casting vision again, and realizing that some people aren't coming back and uh, that just how much has changed, that, that weight was uh, the number three reason. The number two reason was loneliness, which I, that's an interesting one. I think um, that's always the case for pastors. Uh, we could have a discussion I've read a lot um, about the myriad reasons of why, uh, why it is, but pastoring is always lonely no matter how great your church family is. Like, uh, y'all are from Alamo, I have friends, but there is just uh, something about... Uh, being in leadership that makes those relationships, there's d- strange dynamics that make it hard for them to be lifelong. Um, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it, but Carrie, Carrie Newhoff, uh, who uh, planted a, a church in Canada that continues to thrive now, he was a disciple of Andy Stanley. Um, when he felt the Lord calling him to step down from senior leadership, he asked one of his mentors he, what to expect. And... Uh, and he said, well, Carrie, they forget you fast. They forget. And it's not, uh, it, it, we know that it's not malicious, but uh, it's just the nature of things to keep progressing. And, uh, and so it can be very lonely. And that's, I think that's kind of an always the case thing. And then, but the number one reason, and this was stunning to me when I read this research, um, I get it, but just didn't realize how discouraging um, it can be. Uh, but their number one reason was political division among congregants. Political division among congregants. Number one reason. Uh, and they said things like, it's just exhausting, like mediating and trying to love um, this person that has this viewpoint and this person that has this viewpoint and to have the kinds of comments flying out of people's mouths and having to be in the middle of that and be careful not to, uh, not to you know, say the wrong thing to the wrong person, and, and then it's just heartbreaking to see people who hold the most important thing in common to be at each other's throats over things that are less important, and then also just mind-numbing because, uh, because of the silliness and pettiness sometimes of it all. Um, the Great Resignation was a, a podcast that uh, the New York Times hosted with some of these researchers, and, uh, and then they also had some pastors who had participated in a greater, to a greater extent on the show. And one of the pastors said, 
political partisanship is forming our congregants more than our sermons from the Scriptures are. The past two years have revealed some things that we didn't realize were there all along. And so, in other words, the pandemic didn't create partisan outrage. It just brought it into the open and shined a really bright spotlight on it. And it, made, and it really discouraged a lot of pastors that that, se- that that was so big that it seemed to drown out the importance of our unity in the faith. Um, and I, so I'm listening to all that, and I've got, uh, I'm, I'm in this group on Facebook. It's called the Fellowship for uh, Millennial Nazarene Clergy, okay? And uh, I, I remain in that group mostly just to keep my finger on the pulse of what things are going on. But I've also, uh, over the last few years, taken it upon myself to be, uh, I don't know how to put it, just a, a more optimistic voice. <laughs> Uh, sometimes you get people that are discouraged all talking together and it just seems like there's no hope and there's no light and it's all doom and gloom about the church. And I'm like, I don't think I believe that about the church. I believe that God is at work and the Spirit is, is at work and these things are discouraging. It's good to talk about how to think about them and how to work through them, but maybe with less um, shadow <laughs> over what the church is, right? Um, and so I'm concerned for my fellow pastors because I see this. And I'm concerned for the future leadership of the church in our search for a children's pastor. I found out ministry enrollment all across the country is way down. So not only do pastors want to leave, but there's less people that want to be pastors. But I also am concerned for my fellow Christians who are more anxious, angry, and panicked than they are joyful because of government and politics. And the reason why I'm concerned about that is because of the truths that are laid out in Psalm 2. Now, to be clear, not a bad thing at all to be engaged in politics. God Himself established, uh, as far as I can tell in the Scriptures, three institutions for the flourishing of people, places, and things. Those three institutions are the church, capital C, uh, the nuclear family, and government. God established those things. The Scriptures say He established those things. So this study this evening is not a referendum against government, against leadership and power, um, or involvement in shaping those things and, and a thoughtful discussions about how those things affect our lives and our futures. Um, the royal psalms celebrate government and politics. They celebrate them specifically as a meaningful servant for the kingdom of God. And then they warn about government and politics that they are a miserable substitute for Christ and His kingdom. So it's all about, what the Royal Psalms are all about is about holding government and politics in the right light. That they are meant to be a servant of God's kingdom that is now and not yet, um, but they cannot substitute for Christ and His kingdom being built in our hearts. And so we have to choose which lane we'll run in. Will government be a meaningful servant to the ends of God's kingdom, or will it be a miserable substitute in our hearts and in our minds and in our anxious thoughts? So the backdrop for Psalm chapter 2. It's the first of the royal psalms. It's a politically tumultuous season for King David. Uh, he's fighting a lot of wars. There are a lot of, there's a lot of um, insurrectionists around Israel seeking to undo his reign before he gets his footing and he points this out. He, he says the nations are raging. They're set, and, and in fact, he says not just against me, but they are setting themselves up against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed ones or the Lord's people. That's what verses 1-3 through three are establishing. Now, what's interesting is verse 4, and it's kind of the fulcrum 
of the whole passage is that the Lord is not the least bit anxious about His political turmoil. Rather, it says, He's laughing. He's laughing. He thinks it's funny. He thinks it's kind of cute and pathetic that all these kings think they can put themselves in God's place and somehow neutralize the stuff that He's up to in the world. He scoffs at them. The Lord in heaven laughs, and what verse 4 communicates as the fulcrum of the whole passage is because the Lord in heaven laughs, the Lord's people can also laugh, can also scoff at the political turmoil of our world. Three main points from the text this evening. Uh, The first is, there is a cosmic conflict going on that plays out in the realm of government, okay? Um, the cosmic conflict, and this is a, um, a macro concept of the whole biblical story, is that there is empire, which are the kingdoms of the world, and then there is the kingdom, capital K, the kingdom of God that is eternal, but also in our hearts preparing God's people to rule and reign when the kingdom sets itself up and heaven and earth are made new and joined together, okay? So that's a macro all through the, all through the Scriptures. You have, uh, starting with the Egyptians, you have Pharaoh, that's empire, that's uh, Antichrist, that's um, Babylon. Um, the, all of those terms gather within them all of the empires that set themselves up against the Lord and his people. And so there's this idea of empire. Um, and so there, that's the cosmic conflict. Governments that are trying to build their own kingdoms, and then the kingdom and people of God that are living in this world, but also citizens of another. So every royal psalm should be understood in light of Jesus as the anointed one. We are the anointed ones. Jesus is the anointed one, capital A, capital O. And what David says about he and his people we can also read about Jesus and us. We are, Jesus is David, and we are the Israelites, okay? Uh, The kingdoms of the world are conspiring against the kingdom of God. So, if you have angst about government, that's natural. That's what this psalm says, is they are conspiring against the kingdom of God. We're a royal priesthood, we're a holy nation to serve the world under Christ, and there is a conflict cosmic conflict between that nation and the nations of the world that do what every heart does, which is resist God. Romans 8-7, talking about walking in the Spirit, uses some government cosmic conflict language to talk about those who are not walking in the Spirit. It says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Do you hear the government terminology that it's being used? nor can it do so. So the human heart, which is bent towards resisting God, naturally resists God through power, through government, through politics, through, and so that's where the hostility begins and it trickles down into individuals and all their selfishness. So the kingdoms, the parties, the rulers of the, of the world are hostile to God. They do not walk in the Spirit and so they do not submit to God, and, and, and they can't. They don't submit to God, nor can they submit to God. The empires of world governor, governance are opposed to God, and uh, that's what gives rise to the imagery of the beasts in the apocalyptic literature. When you read about beasts in Daniel and Revelation, those are the empires, and uh, their 
hostility to the kingdom of God. So, um, with all of that in mind, what are we to do? Well, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The citizens of the heavenly city become the best citizens of the earthly city. The citizens of the heavenly city become the best citizens of the earthly city. This is what people who have been awakened by the light and who have been brought out of the darkness do. They become excellent citizens of the earthly city, shining the light of the heavenly city that is coming into our dark world. They are not anxious about the opposition, but instead, Romans 12, you know, begins with to not be conformed to the pattern of the world any longer, right? To offer ourselves as living sacrifices and not be conformed. And then it says at the end in verse 21, it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It doesn't say to hide from the evil, to run from the evil. It says simply to stand and do good. To stand and be, to be as we are citizens of the heavenly city, to be the best citizens of the earthly city. If you think back to our study of Daniel on Sunday mornings uh, last year, one of, the things, one of the things we honed in on was that Jeremiah was speaking to the people at, this, at the same time that Daniel um, was in exile in Babylon. And the word of God through Jeremiah was, don't resist Babylon, but rather seek the peace and the flourishing of Babylon. For if Babylon flourishes, so will you. Be the best, most life-giving, neighbor-loving citizens anywhere in this nation or in this empire that has taken you captive. And this is a concept that continues into the New Testament in the context of Rome, where Nero was scorching the earth executing as many Christians as he possibly could and blaming them for all of his inadequacies as a leader. The country is failing and he says, oh, it's the Christians. And then he uses them as torches on the roads in Rome. He, he's there, that's, that's the context that Peter, who's later going to be martyred himself, says, fear God, but honor the king. Peter, in, in this context, in the context where Nero is ruling, and I don't care what you think about any president that we've had recently, none of them are Nero evil. None of us are suffering that kind of persecution, okay? Fear God, honor the king. Because you are connected to the king of all kings, Peter says. Part of what it means to be a Christian in the world is to not tear down those in leadership. In fact, Romans 13 says that if you speak ill of those in leadership, you are speaking ill of God himself who put them in that role. Now, what I found is that we love those verses and we understand them very well when our party and our preferred candidate is in office but we conveniently, conveniently forget them when, when they are not. All of a sudden, those all go out the window, which is typical of political banter, isn't it? Like, we speak very negatively about those that we don't agree with, and we speak very positively and say, oh, how unchristian of you, Tim. It's convenient. <laughs> now, some resistance is appropriate, like Daniel. Hey, I, I'm not going to eat the food. I'm not going to disobey God in order to obey you and to follow your way. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, king, I'd rather be thrown into a furnace than disobey God. Or Daniel, later, uh, I, I would rather be eaten by lions than cease to have communion with God in the way that I always have. Um, or later in the New Testament, Peter and John in Acts, they say to the leaders, they say, far be it from us to obey men instead of God. Okay, so there is, a, there is kind of a holy rebellion, but even that resistance in all of those instances I just mentioned is done with respect 
without retaliating insults, and without the kind of lashing rebellion that would mark the insurrectionists of the fleshly world, right? It's done with an honor to the king, but simply saying there is a king of kings and a lord of lords who is above you, and I will not uh, violate his law in order to obey or appease yours. If I could speak about this in more practical terms, I might say the tone of cable news did not exist amongst followers of Yahweh or among Christians. That kind of behavior was considered sin. I believe it's still sin today. And I think that the evidence is in the fruit. I've never met a person who came away from cable news exuding the fruit of the Spirit. Really, truly. It, it, it ticks you off. It, it dulls your heart. It darkens your soul. It's not good for us. And we come away with that Spirit. And that's not a Spirit of heaven. <laughs> the best citizens of the earthly cities are going to be those citizens who are influenced the most by the heavenly city. And if we are most influenced by the heavenly city, we will be more like Jesus than our earthly parties and the pundits of those parties. I have found that wholehearted Christians who engage the Scriptures honestly tend to end up more with a worldview that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. In fact, I've been accused of both. I've, ha- I've received emails that said, you're quite liberal for a Christian, and I've received emails that says, you're too conservative to be a Christian. Jesus was this, and Jesus was that. And I've been accused of both. And I thought, that's interesting. I've never said really a lot about what I think about politics, but somehow you've figured out what I am, and you've, uh, you've pegged me as too much to be a true Christian. <laughs> and I've always thought that was interesting. I think wholehearted Christians end up with a world because Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. So, if, so I'm pretty sure that Jesus' kingdom will not look exactly like any one of our two very polarized parties. That, uh, like Leonard Sweet said when I was in college, that Jesus on the cross is more like someone out with his arms outstretched pulling all of the extreme pol- polarizations of our world into himself, where the one truth and the one way and the one life is. Uh, during the pandemic, or, or shortly when we were allowed to meet again and all of that, Christ, Pre- Christ Presbyterian in Nashville um, interviewed a couple of our local Tennessee re- representatives, both Christians but one was Democrat and one was Republican. And they, they have this organization that uh, seeks to influence and make an impact in their city. And there are seven different um, places that they strive to do that. One of them is government. So this was um, as a part of that uh, organization. And so they had these two uh, representatives in. And uh, in the course of the conversation, there was lots of interesting stuff. But in the, por- in the course of the conversation, I think one of the most interesting or poignant points was at one point the moderator asked if either would consider running for president one day. Okay, two Christian people uh, with very compelling worldviews. And so the natural question was, what about, would you ever strive to, be, to go further in leadership? And both of them, both the Democrat and the Republican said, I think we're too far toward the center to get put forth by our parties as a candidate. Uh, that they gave specific reasons. The, the, the Democrat says, well, I'm pro-life. My party would never put me forward. And the, re- the Republican says, I have, I have some, some desires to look at the way that, uh, that our health care system works and the way that we care for the poor that probably would never, ever allow me to be put forth as a Republican candidate for president. And what was really interesting is they, they both looked at each other, and I can't remember which candidate, but one of the candidates said, it would seem that we have more in common with Jesus 
than with our political parties. And because of that, we are much nearer to each other than we are apart like our parties are. And it was just this, you, you can just see in the interview this profound calm that comes over the room. I, can, I can't imagine like hosting that as a church event and the, the polarizations. And, but you could just, it was like in that moment, everybody realized what was really at stake. And it wasn't a political party. It was the kingdom of God. And it was so refreshing. I'm getting goosebumps even just thinking about it right now. So in spite of the com- cosmic conflict, we don't have to be anxious because the Lord laughs. And there's something greater that we have in common. Uh, Walker Percy, he was a famous novelist who became a Christian, and he gave two reasons why. Um, he said, first, because the Jews still exist and they shouldn't. He said, the, the first reason I became a Christian is because the Jews still exist and they shouldn't. He said, there's no earthly reason that they should exist. Pharaoh, 40 years in the wilderness, ha- having to fight to have a land of their own with all kinds of wickedness and crazy cultures. Haman, Herod, the Holocaust, all of it. Like, they should not exist as a people. They should have been exterminated a long time ago. But somehow, they're still here. And when I observed that, and I observed their claim that Yahweh had called them and set them apart as a special people, I had to stand up and pay attention. Any other culture that has been through that kind of uh, a ringer would not, would not be here. And then he said, he said a related point to, to this first one would be that the Christian church exists, and it shouldn't. He, he said, he, he said, Jesus declared, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it and no weapon fashioned against it will stand. And then they endured three, almost 400 years of rampant persecution. But instead of dwindling their numbers, it actually multiplied them. And he said, all, he said the, moment, the moment that this all came to a head as I remember reading Jesus' words where he said that a kernel of wheat must fall to the ground and die in order for new life or a harvest to spring up. And he said, I realize that's exactly what's been at work. That the more you try to destroy what God is doing, the more that it just exponentially expands. And there's only one explanation for that. And that had to be that Yahweh was real and Jesus was Messiah, the Son of the living God who died and rose from the dead. So that was the, the first reason he gave. And, and I think about that. The entire Bible is written by slaves, exiles, and prisoners. The entire Bible. And here we are, 8 billion people in the world, and one-third of us follow Jesus today. Think about that. How is that possible unless there is a King, capital K, of kings, and a Lord, capital L, of lords? The history of Christianity is won again and again by underdogs. I think about that too. Think about Joseph, sold by his brothers into slavery, somehow ends up in an influential Egyptian's house uh, but then is thrown into jail because of uh, a sinful woman, and then, but then ends up in the court of Pharaoh after someone forgot the favors that he had already performed for them and still ends up in the court of Pharaoh eventually and becomes the number two in the greatest kingdom of the world at that time. And, and of course, you know, you know about Daniel and his friends, and, and there's Gideon, and there's Isaiah, and there's the disciples who are nobodies, who, now, who, who ultimately die a bunch of martyr deaths, and yet their lives live on and their stories live on here 2,000 years later, influencing billions of people. And then there's the author of this psalm, David. David 
was the youngest in a family of seven, and he grew up with a father wound. You know what I mean? Like sometimes uh, fathers mistreat their children, and he really did. Like if you look at the story, Samuel comes to Jesse to examine his seven sons to find the next king, and Jesse presents only six. So imagine the relationship between Jesse and David that he doesn't even bring David, the prophet of God, the well-known, well-respected prophet of God says, bring me your sons, one of them's going to be king. And Jesse's like, well, it's not David. And he, he doesn't even bother to call him. And Samuel says, well, it's none of these six. Do you have any others? And the literal translation of what he says in the Hebrew is kind of a curse word, but it essentially means, well, there's still the runt. Okay, there's, language, there's words in our modern language that would be similar. They're not appropriate. Okay, <laughs> he says, well, there's still the runt. And the runt becomes the king. And not just any king. He becomes the king that the line of the Messiah comes from. And Psalm 27 tells us that David's mother actually abandoned him too. So he doesn't just have a father wound. He, he doesn't have a mother. And then he fought Goliath. And Goliath made it really clear. You send this dog, this nothing, this pipsqueak to fight me. And he says, well, I come in the name of the Lord God Most High, Almighty, Commander of Heaven's armies. And he defeats him. And then Saul, jealous, jealous rage, pursues him his whole life. And then his own son, Absalom, manipulates, humiliates him in seeking his power. And Jesus comes, and he calls himself a son of David, a son of the runt, a son of the pipsqueak, a son of the persecuted. And this underdog becomes a global force that changes the world and entire civilizations. So there is a cosmic conflict, but there is a clear winner and a clear loser in the conflict, which means we can laugh instead of fret when it comes to government and politics and all the anxieties of the world. The second thing I see in the text is there, there is a king and a kingdom that do not fail and cannot fail. There's all kinds of kings and kingdoms that have set themselves against God and his people. William Plummer, he was a, he's a British politician and pastor uh, who also loves history. Uh, he writes, of the 34 high-ranking Roman officials who distinguished themselves, in other words, their accomplishments were specifically their zeal to persecute the early Christians. He says there were 34, if you look at history, there were 34 high-ranking Roman officials who just went out of their way to try and kill as many Christians as they could. He says, here's what happened to those 34. One became deranged, one slain by his own son, two went blind, one drowned, one strangled, one died in brutal captivity, seven died from loathsome diseases, three died by suicide, five were assassinated by their own servants, eight killed in battle, and four died in prison. Which he then goes on to say brings new meaning to uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. He says, Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. So no matter what you bring against my king and his people, my kingdom will not fail. And if you, if you, mess, if you mess with us, uh, it's like, anybody ever heard of Radiohead? Probably not. Was a, Radiohead was a band that I liked when I was a kid, okay? A uh, song that I really liked to uh, sing out was Karma Police, and there was a line in there that said, this is what you get when you mess with us. This is what you get when you mess with us. And that's kind of what verse 5 and 6 says. It's as if the psalm is saying, this is what you get when you mess with me, and when you mess with my capital A, capital O, anointed one, and when you mess with my anointed people. 
And it sounds mean, might be mean, maybe, I don't know. Sounds harsh, maybe, but I would be a charlatan if I didn't tell you that Jesus Christ has teeth. That He is not just a lamb, but He's also a lion. Okay? He's also the lion of Judah. He is lion just as well as lamb. He is severe just as well as He is kind. He is full of conviction just as well as He is full of compassion. And so Derek Kidner, commentator on this passage, he says, there is no refuge from the Lord. There is only refuge in the Lord. The Lamb is there to save us from the lion. The lion of sin, first of all, that seeks to devour us, but also the lion of His just wrath on those who oppose His goodness. So, verse 10 says, be wise. Be wise and learn to see things from God's perspective. Those who oppose Him will be smashed to pieces by a rod of iron. And that brings me to the second point that Walker Percy says. The second reason I came to Jesus. He says, first of all, uh, the Israelites still exist and they shouldn't. And the Christian church exists and it shouldn't. But he says, secondly, the Hittites don't. The Hittites don't exist. And that's the second reason that I came to Christ. The pharaohs are gone. The tribes of Canaan are gone. I've read all about the fall of Babylon and the fall of Rome. But the Lion of Judah is fulfilling the promises the same as the Lamb of God did on the cross. And so when I look at that, today people name their children after Joseph, after David, after Isaiah, after Esther, after Mary, and they name their dogs after Nero, Caesar, and Nebuchadnezzar, right? I mean, think about it. Really, seriously. When nobody, nobody is lining up to name their son Nero. Nobody's lining up to name their daughter Cleopatra. Maybe Cleo, but I don't think they're thinking of Cleopatra, most of them. <laughs> Today, uh, we, we have this opportunity to, to recognize we don't need to consume night after night or morning after morning all kinds of negativity in the news as if our Savior could be found among the same people that you're seeking to be saved from. You know? Like, that's the irony of that. Instead, we, we can take refuge in the Lord. We can fill our heart and mind with His Word and our time with being a citizen of His heavenly city, city so that our citizenship in the earthly city will be empowered to actually impact the world for the change that only the kingdom of God can bring because it will not fail. Truly, the gates of hell will not stand against it. The Israelites exist and they shouldn't, and the Hittites don't. <laughs> And lastly, the third thing I see here in the text, there's a reign that has only begun. So Jesus is the King over, above, and beyond all kings. He is the one, in verse 4, who laughs. Because Hebrews 10, there's only one person about which the Scriptures say sits down in the throne room of God. And it is Jesus. You can read in Hebrews 10, it says that when He finished His work and ascended to heaven, He sat down at the right hand of God. And now He sits there and he simply, he simply intercedes before the Father all the time. He sits there and He speaks affectionately and protectively over all of His anointed ones. He is the anointed one and now He sits at the right hand of God. Now, if you are sitting down as a ruler, your work is finished, right? Your work is accomplished. If, if, there's much, if there's much to do to accomplish your work, you're not sitting down. You're moving about the courtyard. You're mingling with people. You're cutting deals. You're signing contracts. You're sending out all kinds of emissaries on your behalf, right? But Jesus is sitting down and simply speaking to the Father saying, that one's mine. <laughs> that one's mine. 
That one's mine. That the accuser has no say over them. That the accuser has no final word. The accuser has no right to be pushing in against them. Uh, their, their prayers are coming up to us from our spirit and He is groaning and interceding before us and we will not allow them to fail. We will, not, we will not allow the enemy to prevail against them. We will, instead, we will prepare a table right there in the presence of their enemies and we will mock and we will scoff the enemy that seeks to undermine their faith and seeks to tear down the kingdom of God that, we, that, that they have received into themselves and that they are participating in building. He sits. Blessed are those, as the passage closes, who take refuge in Him. Blessed. Happy. Protected. Secure. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Jesus is sitting on His throne, availing Himself to us. In, he's, giving, he's sitting on His throne of grace in our time of need. He's finished His work and He's simply awaiting all things to be finished in Him for all of eternity and for His enemies to be made His footstool forever. And in the same way that Jesus reclined at the table with tax collectors, prostitutes, and all kinds of sinners who simply confess their need for Him and their trust in Him, He now sits with us when we confess our need for Him and place our trust in Him. We can have communion with Him every day. He's not worried about how things will turn out, and so we don't have to worry about it. And as I prayed earlier, we are called to glance at the world, but to gaze at Jesus. To glance at the world, but to gaze at Jesus. To snack on anxiety. What I mean is, it's okay to acknowledge it. It's okay to say, okay, that's there. Uh, that, that's beyond my power, for sure. But we feast on Him. We feast on Him. Not the other way around. So a lot of us, we are feasting on anxiety and snacking on Him. We spend all day worrying and fretting. Many people consume many more hours of news than they consume of the Word of God or the fellowship of, the people, of God's people. Right? We're, in our world, we are feasting on anxiety and snacking on Him. It needs to be the other way around. We need to be gazing at Him. We need to be fixated on Him and just glancing at the world around us. We can laugh with the Lord in heaven and we can begin our reign with Him as a citizen of the heavenly city right now. So I want to close with this little passage we normally read at Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Ray Ortland, uh, he, was, he was actually a former pastor of Christ Presbyterian in Nashville. He said, Jesus will not come back to tweak this problem or that. He's famous for a series. He preached through the whole book of Isaiah. Okay, so this is just from the sermon series I've been slowly working through. I'm on like chapter 48 now. I'm on 18 chapters away. Anyway, he said, he, said about this, he said about this. He said, Jesus will not come back to tweak this problem or that. No, He will come back with a massive correction of all evil forever. Of the increase of His government. He says, forever 
His government will be forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. Never a limit that you could place on Jesus until Jesus returns and it becomes full and complete. The finite will experience ever more wonderfully the infinite. And every new moment will be better than the last. His point being, the world is deteriorating around us. You're not wrong to observe that. But God's kingdom is intensifying and growing until it reaches its fullness and it returns to us and receives us into it and we rule and reign in every day being better than the last. That's what the royal psalms are all about. That's the hope that King David stood on when his kingdom was in turmoil. And that is what we get to join, the story that we get to join today. We're already members of the heavenly city. We continue to strive towards the goal to receive the prize. And in doing so, we become the best members of our earthly cities and shining little glimmers of light from that heavenly city that's coming, that's growing to the moments that will be better than the last. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank You for this encouraging Word. It's encouraging to me anyway, so thank You for uh, speaking to my heart. And I just pray that this, this would also speak to each one who's listening today or at any point in the future on the podcast. We just pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that You would grow our vision and our uh, um, in intensity and zeal for pursuing You, even as You pursue this world and uh, in, in zealous um, and mighty power to set up Your kingdom and Your peace forever. Uh, God, that You would equip us and uh, convict us and calm us and settle us on the truth that Your peace is what's growing. Even as the world is falling apart, Your peace is growing. And we have it here in our hearts by Your Spirit and by Your work um, in this world. And we know that one day it's going to be complete and we get to be a part of it. We celebrate that in Jesus' name. And we just ask that You would help us to live in that. And when we, when we start feasting on anxiety, that You would call us back and bring us back to Your table to feast on You. In Jesus' name, Amen.